I think there's a tremendous challenge for us that we find in Scripture, uh, and there's no condemnation in this room, right? So whenever we go to the Scripture, uh, we go to be taught and we go to learn. You know, the, the Bible can be incredibly entertaining, but the Bible is not here to entertain you. The Bible is here to instruct you and show you how you ought to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to boldly go into some places in Scripture that can be a little bit scary for some people, um, but they're gonna, there's no judgment, no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, but there's certainly lessons for us uh, to learn. I like to joke that uh, Pastor Shirley, years ago when I was uh, just starting kind of my preaching, uh, she listened to a sermon that I gave and she told me, she said, Ye- David, you are like peas covered in applesauce. I was like, what the world? She said, she said, you look sweet, but there's some medicine in there. So there is some medicine in here this morning in particular. Uh, week two, week three, we're going to have a lot of fun, but we've got some text to go over today that I hope will be really helpful uh, to you. It's all centered around this one scripture that we find uh, in Philippians chapter two. I know I told you to turn to numbers, just stay there, but let's read this together. Philippians chapter two, verse 14, uh, Paul would say this, do everything without grumbling or arguing do everything without grumbling or arguing, which is really two ways of saying, stop complaining. We, we live in a complaining society. And as a pastor, and maybe, maybe more importantly as a parent, uh, I'm continuing to get more and more concerned that the complaining is, seems to be getting worse with every generation. It, it is a curiosity to me that the most indulged society is also the most complaining society. It, it, it would seem that the more people have, the more they complain. And it shouldn't be that way. Uh, in fact, if you're wondering, maybe wondering what complaining is, this is the phrase that I have, and I think it's the best definition of complaining, and it's this, moody discontent. In fact, that's what you can write on the top of your paper if you're taking a moody discontent. So you're discontent about something in the world and you're moody about it. Moody discontent. You know, years, uh, or I don't know, a little while ago, I came across this paper that was written by this uh, sociologist. And the sociologist, he was talking about just this upcoming generation and how um, unhappy they are and how um, complaining they can be. And he he made the connection in his personal opinion that the, the, all of this co- kind of complaining culture stems from what he called child-centered parenting. And, and I'm thinking like child-centered parenting, well, what else would parenting be centered on? You're only a parent because you have a child. So of course the child's going to be the center of the parenting. But what uh, he means by that is basically where we would allow the child to become the boss. And he says that when, in families where the child is able to be the boss, that tends to produce um, adults that are discontent with their own lives and complain all the more. Uh, and he says that the danger here is, in particular, very high with small families. Now, I, uh, I come from a family of four, so it was just me and my sister and my parents, uh, and my daughter is an only child, so I'm not coming against that at all, but I think small families do need to take particular ca- precautions um, 
for some things that tend to be kind of handled automatically with larger families. Let me give you an example. So let's say you, um, a kid in a small family, maybe it's an only child. Well, this only child on a school day would wake up and they get up and the mom says, oh, well, what what would you like for lunch, sweetie? And the kid says, oh, I'll take tuna or peanut butter or whatever. Okay. And so she goes in the kitchen and makes the sandwich. And then as the kid's walking out the door, they say, what would you like for dinner, sweetheart? And they'll say, oh, this and this and this. Say, okay, and and what time should we expect you home? And the the kid would say, well, I've got a few things to do after school. And, you know, Anna's mom's going to take us to the mall to get jeans. So maybe you can expect me around 6.30. Okay, sweetheart, have a great day. And then by the time they do come home and the mom has slaved over this meal that she's cooked from some exotic cookbook, the only child will take one bite and say, what? I don't like it. Now, contrast that with um, uh, a family with four or five or six kids. When you have five or six brothers and sisters, man, you wake up, and when you are heading out to school, you are handed a brown bag. And mom says, dinner is at six. If you're here, you'll eat. And if you do come home and one of the kids takes a bite of their dinner and they say, I don't like it, the kid next to him says, good, and takes it. <laughs> uh, I just think it's funny and so true. Um, to, me, to me, maybe what's less funny is where we have kids who are growing up and becoming some sort of adults that are used to every system that they come into contact with bending to what their particular preferences are. And that's not the way the real world works. In fact, th- think about this. I've got a slide for you. I want you to consider this. 40 years ago, kids couldn't wait to grow up so they would have freedom. You all remember that? You want to grow up so you'd have freedom. But today, many kids never want to grow up because they don't want to lose their freedom. You hear that? That, Because to grow up means conformity, right? To grow up means I got to get a job. And and if if I show up late, my boss is going to fire me. And I have to wear clothes that I don't think are cool. You know, so here you have a, a girl that was so, such a, such a hottie at, in high school, and now she's grown up, and now she has to get a job at hot dog on a stick, you know, wearing that hideous hat and, and making lemonade like she's churning butter from the 1800s. <laughs> it's like... Yes, how uncool, right? How uncool, and nobody, uh, nobody wants that, of course. And so um, what the sociologist said is that kids who are used to having every system bend around their preferences tend to grow up to become dissatisfied adults who are filled with moody discontent, where they can complain about literally everything. Like you give them a check for a 1000 bucks, and they will complain about the line at the bank. And you might be thinking, oh, God, that's so true. Well, look at your own life. I mean, you have been blessed with much more than a $1,000 check, and you still find things to complain about. And, and, and so to me, it's fun to think about kids, but I think it, it points to a larger pattern that's true for all of us, which is this. People seem to be getting more and more comfortable thinking that every system should bend to their own preference. 
And, and listen, nowhere is that more true than church. Oh my God, the music is to this or the preaching is to that. Like, did you know, did you know that we have had people that have left this church because the music's too loud? And we've had people that have left this church because the music's too quiet. Right? So, and, you know, we've had people that have left the church because we've got all these moving lights and they don't like that. We've also had people who have left the church to go to a church that has more moving lights. Right? Preferences just go every which way. We have people that don't come to this church anymore because they, they only like it when I preach and they don't like it when Pastor Marshall preaches. And we have people that only want to hear Pastor Marshall preach and don't like it when I preach, so they've left. Hey, look, whatever floats your boat, man. <laughs> oh, oh, cool. These people are passionate about boats. It's cool. Look, whatever, whatever you want to do. My, I think the problem is when it goes beyond just a preference, right? We all have internal preferences. I like that song. I don't like that song. I've got all of those. There's songs that we sing. I like them. I don't like them. Here's the difference. I don't find it necessary to um, voice my complaints to everybody in the world to talk about how that song or this song or this preacher or, oh my God, the offering message was to this, to that. And, and we have just grown up being people who feel justified in complaining about whatever it is that happens to not agree with our preference. Um, here's the whole idea that I'm hoping to get in this uh, sermon, and it's this. It's uh, a, a phrase we'll go back to at the end. Being a complainer is a completely unacceptable way to live as a Christian. Being a complainer is a completely unacceptable way to live as a Christian. Um, it's just like, you know, it, so I think there's a sense where complaining is kind of a new thing, but there's another sense where complaining is not new, where complaining has been part of the human condition since the beginning. In fact, let's think of the first ever complainer in the history of the world. Who do you think that might be? Well, the first ever human, of course. We make it like one chapter before we start complaining. And what was, what was Adam's complaint, right? It's this woman that you gave me. It's funny, he's not even complaining about the woman, he's complaining about God that you gave me. I want you to think about it, that Adam was living in perfection and still found a reason to complain. So we need to get rid of the idea that like once life gets better, I'll stop complaining. No, you won't. Something doesn't have to be wrong for you to complain. You've all proved that. I've proved that. Right? And so, so this cycle just continues on. We don't make it one page before we complain, and it continues, continues, continues. For example, Cain complained about God's punishment for killing his brother, right? Very next generation, Genesis chapter 4. Moses complained to God for not doing what Moses wanted him to do when he wanted him to do it in Exodus chapter 5. Aaron and Miriam complained about God, uh, to God about Moses, God's chosen leader, in Numbers chapter 12. Jonah complained to God for showing mercy on his enemies in Jonah chapter 4. And that makes sense because isn't it annoying when God shows mercy on people you think he ought to kill? Yeah, it's the worst. I think, I think the problem, though, with complaining is just how contagious it is. You, y'all think coronavirus is contagious? You should see how far complaining has spread. There's not a person on the planet that's not infected by it. 
And so if we were to talk about like in the, in the Bible, in scripture, what's, what would you say is the classic example of complaining? Who might that be? Well, of course, it would be the Israelites, right? It's the classic um, story of complaining. I've got quite a bit of scripture to go through, but it's all so, so good and so rich. So I hope you'll stay with it. Numbers chapter 13, verse 30. So uh, this is when they're right about to enter into the promised land. This is the, the land that, has, that, that they want to inhabit, and it's the land that has been promised to them by God. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses, this is verse uh, 30, and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. See, Joshua and Caleb, they come back from spying the promised land, and they say, guys, we checked it out. We can do this. We can, we, can, we can take this promised land. And verse 31, but, say, say that word with me, but. There's always someone being a but. But. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. So here the rest of the group of the spies says, well, no, no, we can't. Like, we, we, we've seen them. And if you think about it, of course, they're doubting their own abilities, but probably more than that, they're doubting God's ability. Verse 32, and listen, look at what they did. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim, so giants. We've seen, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So see, they come back, and they're complaining, right? Oh, well, we're never going to be able to do it. Figures, oh, yeah, yeah, thanks a lot, God, of course. All these promises, we've only been out here for 40 years, and we can't even go in there. Thanks a lot. Now jump to the next chapter, chapter uh, 14. So before, we had just this small group of spies that were complaining, right? And then look what happens. A small group, and then verse 36. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land, this is the spies, who returned and, listen to this, made the whole community, what is it? Grumble. So before it was just a small group and the small group made the whole community. They infected the whole group by their own complaining. Let me say this, that you have the same power. You as a um, being who's created in the image of God, a co-creator of our shared future together, you have the power to infect the people around you with your complaining. So it's not just you. It's the people around you that are victims to our sinful tendency to complain. So what do you think happened to these complainers, this group of spies that came back complaining? Let's read it, verse 37. These men who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. This really is the, this really is the story of the Israelites is complaining, right? I, I would say this without a doubt, the biggest sin in the entire Old Testament is complaining. That's really the story of Israel. The, the, the sin of the nation of Israel is that they cannot go more than a page or two without complaining, and they pay dearly for it. It's amazing that here you have the, the, the people of God 
who God has consistently been faithful to. They've been led out of Egypt by these, you know, miraculous deliverance. There's these 10 plagues, you know, that that come and, and usher their deliverance in. Of course, God parts the Red Sea. And as soon as they become free people, what do you think they do? They start to complain. And so, so what I want you to, to do with you this morning, if you would uh, be game for it, is to just take you on a brief journey of the people of Israel to see how their response is to the goodness and favor of God. Exodus chapter 14, verse 11. So go back one chapter. Um, yeah. So here, the, um, the Israelites have just been delivered uh, from Egypt. Remember that? Let my people go. Okay, fine. You can go. All that. Well, they have just been delivered, but this is before the cross the Red Sea. So they're not out of the woods yet. Exodus 14, verse 11. They said to Moses, look at this. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? This is incredibly disrespectful. This is Moses who has risked his life many times over to free these people, not to mention the miracles that God performed to make this deliverance possible. And the first feedback that they get is saying, God, what have you guys done? There's, not, there's no places to bury us in Egypt, so you had to bring us out to the desert to die. These people are uh, just crass people. And, and here's their complaint. Are you ready? Their complaint was this. This miracle doesn't look how I expected it to look. Okay, continue on. Exodus chapter 15. That must have just been me. It's fine. Exodus 15. Uh, By now they are on the other side of the Red Sea and their deliverance is complete. Exodus 15 verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. Now, three days without water, let's give them some credit. It's a big deal. Right, like you can go, some people can go up to one week without water, but after that, you die, everybody. We all die without water. So, so let's not pretend like, though these Israelites, they didn't have anything to complain about, but we have something to complain about. That is not true. This is a significant uh, problem for them. Exodus 15, verse uh, 23. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So Marah is a word that means bitter. Verse 24, so what did they do about this? So they grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Grumbled is a, is a Bible word, basically means whining and complaining. Uh, of course, later in the chapter, uh, God would come and provide water and even food. Now jump with me to uh, Exodus chapter 18, beginning of the next chapter. Six, uh, I'm sorry, 16, Exodus 16, one. And I'm reading from the NIV, of course says this, the whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, it's the most confusing way to say a date I've ever seen. The 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. Okay, whatever. In the desert, listen to this, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. So let's get this straight. God has miraculously delivered them from captivity, parted the Red Sea, provided them food and water as, for the first time in their lives, free people. 
And what's the first thing they do? What's the next thing they do is complain. 16 verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And God's patience with the Israelites is amazing. Exodus 17, next chapter, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses. See that quarrel? They quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? See, it takes almost no time for them to forget the blessings and provision and the goodness of God. And maybe you can see yourself in that. Yeah, I know God came and delivered me a week ago, but I have a problem now that I should probably spend some time complaining about. Numbers chapter uh, 11. It's a, a little bit of time will pass. About 40 years will pass in the wilderness. And by the time we get to Numbers chapter 11, this is at the end of the wilderness, right? 40 years in the wilderness, and now this is at the end. Certainly, these people would have learned their lesson by now, right? 40 years of this? Certainly. Numbers 11, verse 1, look look at this. Now, the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. This is amazing. After 40 years, they're still complaining. And I don't want to disrespect my elders in here, But some of you, 40 years ago, you were complaining, and you know what? You're still complaining 40 years later, right? So so complaining is not just a young person's thing. I know people who once they hit 60, their complaining went way up. (laughs) Numbers 11. Again, from verse one, now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he, this is God, look at this, heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. And then jump to verse four, the rabble with them began to crave other food, right? So he had already given them manna, but they're craving other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat, Verse five, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. These are real deep people. You know, they're complaining about cucumbers and melons. And can we be real? Like me and Jordan, we don't eat much bread, but um, bread is better than fruits and vegetables. So they're complaining. They want fruits and vegetables. Okay. Now jump to Numbers chapter 14. A couple pages over. Again, what we see is the pattern is God keeps faithfully providing for his people and they keep what? Complaining. And then God sends spies into the promised land, right? And save for two, they all come back. The spies come back and say, oh God, we can't do it. We'll be killed. We'll be crushed. There's giants, all that complaining. Verse 26, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, listen to this. This is important. How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. 
So tell them, as surely as I live, listen to what God would say to these people, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. Isn't that interesting? So the, so the negative words, the complaining, boomeranged back and became true. Verse 29, in the wilderness, this is God speaking, in the wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Isn't that interesting that that people complaining about their situation, God takes that as complaining against him, right? They would be like, we're not complaining against God. We're complaining about the fact that we want better food. But he says, you're complaining against me, grumbled against me. Verse 30, not one of you, God speaking, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except for Caleb, son of uh, Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. Except for the two non-complaining guys, none of you guys are gonna come. Verse 31, as for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. Isn't that interesting? Rejected? How have we rejected the promised land? You know, we've been waiting for the promised land. We've been searching for the promised land. Well, according to God here, that complaining about their current situation was their rejection of God's plan to get out of the situation. You hear that? Complaining about their current situation was them rejecting God's plan to get them out of the situation. Verse 32, but as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. And they did. Numbers chapter 16, two chapters over. Verse 41. The next day, this is the day after some people are killed by invading the priesthood. So the next day, the whole Israelite community, what? grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. But when the assembly of the Lord gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Verse three, then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting and the Lord said to Moses, look, so they're complaining again and here's what God says to, to Moses, get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. Then Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put incense in it. This is, their, this is their plan to try to save their people. Take the censer and put incense in it along with burning coals from the altar and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. Verse 47, so Aaron did what Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. Verse 48, he stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. Lastly, verse 49, but 14,700 people died from the plague in addition to those who had died because of Korah. Korah is where the ground swallowed them up. This happens again in chapter 20 happens again in chapter 21, and I won't read it to you, but over and over you see this pattern through the entire story arc of the Old Testament is that God provides for his people and they complain and they're punished for it. That is the story of the Old Testament over 
and over and over and over. It's really summarized in, uh, uh, by the psalmist, Psalm 106, ver- uh, let's see, verse, what is it? verse 25. This is kind of like a summary of the story of Israel. They grumbled in their tents and did not obey the Lord. So he swore to them with uplifted hand that he would make them fall in the wilderness, make their descendants fall among the nations and scatter them throughout the land. God, why would God do such a thing? Because they, to quote the verse, grumbled in their tents become because of their complaining. So these are not pleasant scriptures. I don't enjoy telling you these stories. I have much more fun in the parables of Jesus, right? And nor do I have time to go into how Jesus shapes and instructs our understanding of the Old Testament and talk about how different our covenant is to the people of Israel. I don't have time to go into any of that, but today all I want you to do is just to just heed the warning. And you might be thinking, warning? Are you sure? Yeah, warning. I don't know if it's warning us. Look at how Paul would refer to these stories in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 8. He, he says this when talking about the Israelite people. We should, not commit a sexual, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Verse 10, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and, listen to this, were written down as warnings for us. So here Paul is saying the fact that all of these people were killed because of their complaining is a warning for you. So we'll go back to the original point. What is the warning? What's the instruction here uh, for us as people? We're not condemned under Christ, right? We don't, we don't fear. We don't fear judgment. We don't fear ret- retribution. So what's the lesson for us to learn from these stories? It's the point that we made at the very beginning, which is this. Being a complainer is a completely unacceptable way to live as a Christian. And it simply will not fly. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Again, Paul would say this, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. And so you might be thinking, David, it's cool. I don't, I don't grumble. I don't complain. Well, you might. Maybe you're the first one, but you might. So what I have for you briefly, and then we'll um, be done. My clocks aren't working, so I can talk as long as I want. Look, it says zero. Can y'all see that? It's cool. Three, like, um, I'm calling them diagnostic questions, three self-diagnostic questions to identify your own complaining. So you can ask these questions of yourself to maybe identify the places where you do, in fact, complain. Number one is this. Do my conversations often revolve around everyday situations that are irritating to me? God, that's so quiet in here. I love it. Do my conversations often revolve around everyday situations that are irritating to me, right? And it's easier to see in other people than, it's, than it is in yourself. Um, but I'm sure you can probably think of like the person at the office that's, you know, oh, hey, how's it going? You know, they're gonna be, oh, the grocery store. My God, I had to wait in line for 15 minutes. I can't believe it. Or like the in-laws are coming into town. That's gonna be fun, not 
Or like, oh my God, the, the people I work with, I've never met the, such stupid people in my entire life, right? Like you can, you can see they're complaining. And, and here's what's really sick is I think oftentimes when people complain to each other, what they're trying to do is connect with each other. Problem is it's the way of the world, right? It's, it's not the way that God um, has set it out for us to connect with each other. So I'm not gonna connect with you based on how, oh my God, you know, construction workers, and oh, I'm sure that's going to go fast, city workers. You know, I'm not going to do that, because even though that is a way for me to connect with you, but it's not the right way for me to connect with you. Um, I remember years ago, I used to work at Cardinal Health Pharmaceuticals. Mom, do you remember this? For like one, maybe one year. And I worked with this lady named Angie. Angie was maybe mid mid-50s, something like that. And the, the job was we would open a lot of boxes with box cutters and we would put a lot of product on shelves. And so there was a ton of time to talk. Now, Angie was married to a man named Ron. Right? And notice I didn't say happily married, but married. And it was amazing over the course of the year how well I got to know Ron, even though I had never met the guy. So, you know, it's like you go in Monday morning. Oh, you know, I knew intimate details about this man. Like I knew that he left his underwear on the floor in the house. I knew that he smoked in the house when she wasn't there, that she hated that. I remember she, I know that he like would stink up the bathroom and never turn the fan on. I knew all this stuff about Ron. I never met the guy. Uh, because Angie was a complainer. Right? And, and here's the thing. I don't think she was trying to do anything mean. I think she was trying to connect with me, but in a way that's totally unacceptable for me as a follower of Jesus. Right? Even though the motive might be there to connect with somebody else, if you try to connect by just complaining about things, just know that's not an acceptable thing to do for a Christian. So that was number one. Do my conversations often revolve around everyday situations that are irritating to me? Number two, would other people consider me negative while I just consider myself realistic? I think people, we are so proud of being able to like call it like it is. Any imbecile can call it like it is, right? Oh, that's messed up. That's messed up. Oh, our city's messed up. Like, that's, like that requires some sort of brilliant mind. It takes the Holy Spirit, though, to see underneath the surface, to see potential, to see, to see faith, to see virtue in broken situations and broken people, right? And so if you think, I'm just trying to be real, well, listen, I don't think God ever came down on someone for being unrealistic, but consistently he would come against his people for being ungrateful, complaining people. Number two, would other people consider me negative while I consider myself realistic? Number three, do I find comfort in being around people who are annoyed at the same things I am? As, as I've stated, um, uh, complaining is contagious. I'm not exaggerating when I'd say that some relationships are built completely on complaining. Right? Like if, if miraculously the two of you stopped complaining, you wouldn't have anything to talk about. You would sit there in silence. You wouldn't know uh, what to say. And again, I understand that people do this as a way to connect with each other. 
right? I want to talk about how my God, oh, construction, like we have construction by our house, right? And it's like taking forever and they keep pushing back the deadline, you know? And so it'd be easy for me to come up here, even as a speaker, I could come up here and, oh, you know, oh, construction workers, city workers, I'm sure they're working hard, not, you know, like I could do that as a way to connect with you, but it's not the right way to connect with you. And so, so, tendencies to, to, um, to connect with people through uh, what you oppose. It's called scapegoating. Nor do I have time to get into that. But whether or not you realize it, complaining steals your joy. And it's not just your joy, it steals the joy of the people around you too. And so um, I'm, I'm done, but next week we're going to go into what I consider the solution to it. The, the solution to complaining is gratitude. And we're going to talk about it next week, but I just want you to know that you can become grateful and your whole life will change in one second. Right? Nothing on the outside has to change at all for you to become a more grateful person. That there, there is no faster change, I guess, second to giving your life to Christ than you stopping complaining and becoming grateful. Every relationship improves. Every work situation improves. Your relationship with your church improves. And, and where before all you saw was dirt and muck and gross and this is so annoying, now all of a sudden you say, man, I've got a great family. I'm so grateful for friends. I'm so grateful for my church. I'm grateful for my job. You know, like you're... You're living in the reality of yesterday's prayer request, most of you. You know, you, you were praying for something and now you're living it and you still complain. And so we're gonna be, hopefully as a community, as much as humanly possible, God help us, be free from that tendency to only see the negative and ignore the positive. Because unchecked, we'll do that every, every single time. And so, so your life can change though. Your life can change right now. Like your life can, can look so different. Have you ever been like a really cloudy day, you know, and then all of a sudden like the, the clouds part and the sun shines through and it totally changes the visual of everything that you're seeing? That's what being grateful can do. Now all of a sudden you're so grateful for your kids, right? <laughs> Which is, we're potty training right now. Pray for us. Gratitude can change your life in an instant. You might be thinking, Pastor David, you don't understand. Like there are things about my life that are wrong. Well, you know, welcome to everybody. Right? There, despite the fact that there are um, things that are missing and people that are missing and things that we're still believing for to get better, each and every one of us, everyone in this room, everyone listening on live stream, everyone listening to the podcast, we all have something to be grateful for. Right now, you do. You might have a a hundred things that you wish were different. That's totally cool. But you, right here at this very moment, have something to be grateful for. And so I I was trying to think a a few months ago, this is something that God's kind of been doing for me in my own life. And a few months ago, I wrote this in my phone um, and I read it just periodically. And it's a statement that just really resonates. It's a simple statement, but it resonates with me. as a, as a father and as a pastor. And so I'm just going to put it on the screen and I, I'm going to read it to you. And if it resonates with you, then I'm going to ask you to just maybe read it aloud with me as a confession. And this is what I had written down. In this very moment, I have the choice to complain or to be grateful. 
In this very moment, I have the choice to complain or to be grateful. If you, uh, if you identify with that, will you say it with me? In this very moment, I have the choice to complain or to be grateful. Which of course leads us right to Jesus, right? I mean, think if anyone had a reason to complain, it would have been Jesus. Jesus left his place in heaven to become human, to save humanity, and we were so appreciative that we killed him. But not before we spit on him and mocked him and beat him when he's naked and cold and bleeding and alone. Right? And then right at the climax of his suffering, uh, he, he would have plenty to complain about, right? Picture him on the cross saying like, well, gee, this really sucks. You know, you, you can see it. But in this moment where he is, he is in, his pain is at the height of human experience. You know what he says? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And, and of course, I, I believe that in that moment, he was talking about the guards. I believe he was talking about the soldiers. I believe he was talking about all the people who pat, watched him pass by and didn't do anything. But I also believe that he was talking about me and he was talking about you. And that, and that forgiveness of God is something that's available to all of us, even in this very moment. And it's not about you deserving it. It's not about you earning it. It's only about you receiving the free gift that God would have to offer you. His incredible freedom and his incredible um, grace, his incredible forgiveness that is available to us just as a free gift. So um, what I want to do as we close, I just want to say a prayer over you and then we'll, we'll go. Um, but just in, in my heart, I just feel so strongly that, that people in here, that, that God is wanting to um, help you adjust the way that you see. So of course we can talk better. Of course we can like learn to just say less negative things. But really, the, ultimately, our words will flow out of what's going on on the inside of us. And so, so if God can come and he can change our heart, all word problems stem from heart problems. And so, so I believe that what God would want to do in you, maybe over the course of these three weeks that we're going to be together, is to start to adjust in you how you see your own life and how you see what's wrong in your life and how you see what's right in your life to become grateful people.